this uh, April 9th, 2014 is going to be called LIMP, L-I-M-P, LIMP. Uh, we're about to enter into the season of the Passover. Tuesday night is the 14th of Nisan on the Jewish calendar, and it is Passover time. We're about to enter into the calendar in the Greco-Roman calendar, the Gregorian calendar, that is Easter. That would be the, the following uh, week. During this time, people start talking about the resurrection. People start talking about things that Christianity was founded on. And right now, uh, those of you that follow things online or get blogs or watch Christian TV, most of which I don't do, are seeing things about the coming of the Lord. A couple pastors that I love that I, I really, really think highly of. One of them is John Hagee. Uh, because of their love for Israel, are telling the world that there is a unique astronomical phenomenon that is coming that let, ought to let the whole world know Jesus is about to return. And I want to admit, I heard it. I got excited about it. Uh, I did what you guys do. I, I, I Googled it. I began to research it. And about the time I thought, you know, this is pretty exciting stuff, I messed up and opened up my Bible. I want to tell you, if your source of prophecy is a book written by Hal Lindsey or is uh, today's latest newspaper, you've made a mistake. Our source for understanding is the Word. And when I preach something... That's exciting, I hope, for you. I hope you learn. But nothing comes close to the revealed Word of God in the 66 books of the Bible. Come on, men can get it wrong, but God never does. How many people have gone wrong predicting the coming of Jesus? I mean, you're pretty well going to miss that um, most of the time. Fair enough? I'd like to cover with you a couple principles and then get into uh, to this topic and then I want to finish on a practical note. There is no area of Christian doctrine more laced with arrogance, more laced with a, a lack of love for fellow man than end times doctrine. Uh, I mean, maybe the harshest interviews I've ever heard in my life were among Christians that were arguing about their end times doctrine. And that hurts because I don't think it's the spirit of Christ. And by the way, the book of Revelation says the spirit of Christ is the spirit of prophecy. So we're certainly not going to understand prophecy without the spirit of Christ. How does he reveal himself? You know, Proverbs 19.11 says, A man's patience gives him wisdom. It's to his glory to overlook an offense. I may say something tonight that is offensive. It'll be to your glory if you can overlook it. But we're going to be patient with each other in the discussion and try not to do that. Fair enough? As I tackle these subjects, particularly those of you that like to preach, that are bold, that are going to go tell somebody tomorrow, if you show up at a water cooler tomorrow and rain all over somebody's parade so that you can feel as if you have superior knowledge, you will have missed the Spirit of Christ. So that is not my hope tonight. Let me familiarize you real quick with this, uh, with this teaching. I, I brought a couple slides for you. What you see on the screen is called a tetraed moon or tetrad, depending on how you want to pronounce it. Lately, it's been being called a blood moon. It turns out that during a lunar eclipse, the sun gets uh, kind of distorted going through the Earth's atmosphere and onto the surface of the moon, and it produces a pinkish-orange hue on the moon. Can you all see that? If it happens to be harvest time and there's a lot of particulate in the air... Uh, that color is intensified. That is called a tetrade moon, a T-E-T-R-A-D moon. So here's what appeared on Fox News while I was in the hospital. No, while Judah was in the hospital and I was with Judah in the hospital. During the religion section, they uh, had a guest on, a pastor that I have immense respect for, and he said, you need to understand, there have only been four of these tetrade moons uh, in this century, I'm sorry, in the last 500 years, rather. And the first was when the Jews were expelled from Spain around the time Columbus discovered America. And you see the dates that are there. The second 
was when Israel was declared a nation. And you see the dates that are there, 1949 to 1950. Then the Six Days War. And then the fourth is supposed to be starting April 15th, which is Tuesday night, and extending all the way into 2015, about an 18-month period where four moons are going to turn uh, what they say is blood red. The idea being here, look, every time you see four of these blood moons, we see a significant event in Israel, and therefore, Jesus is likely to come back. Now, Hagee's smarter than some of the other people that are promoting this, and he doesn't say Jesus will come back. He simply says it's a likely possibility. Does that make sense? Y'all tracking with me so far? Let's go to the next slide. I want you to notice something that the Fox commentator didn't pick up and that most Christians don't seem to pick up. I put on the board here, 1492. Come on, American history students. What was discovered in 1492? America. At least that's how the history books used to be written. Christopher Columbus discovered America in 1492. Do you know what else happened in 1492? The Spanish Inquisition and Jews were expelled from Spain. The Tetrate Moons, however, didn't occur till 1493 and 1494. Uh, it's a bad sign if the sign comes after the event, don't you think? I mean, imagine how this works with a police officer. You know, you... Uh, you run through an intersection, and then comes the stop sign, but you get a ticket for running through the intersection. Would you accept that? The sign has to be posted before the event, doesn't it? Check out the next one. 1948 is the year that is May 14th, 1948. Israel declared its independence to the world. Well, the tetrate moons didn't occur until 1949 to 1950. Um, again, that's after the event. By the time you get to the Six Days War in 1967 through 1968, the Tetrate Moons did occur during that time period. Now, I want you to see what I am not discounting. There were major events in Israel's history during this time period. I'm not saying they're not. But certainly, two of the, the three, uh, don't, the, the moons don't precede the event. In 2014 and 2015, people are saying there's going to be a crisis in Israel. Do you need NASA to confirm that there's a crisis in Israel? I mean, I'm not going to name him, but you can imagine. I mean, you know who our Secretary of State is. I would say the day he took the job, we had a crisis in Israel. He fundamentally misunderstands the entire Middle East, but this is not a political discussion. I love Israel. So when something points to Israel, I get kind of excited. When I look and see about Israel, uh, anything... My ears perk up. Let's go to the next one, Susan. So here's how these dates fall. April 15th, 2014, on a Jewish Passover, this is Tuesday night, is our first tetrade moon. Then you see it again, October 8th, 2014, the Feast of Tabernacles. Come on, guys. Those of you that listen to our messages a lot, participate with us a lot, the first Jewish feast on the 14th of Nisan, Pesach, or Passover. The seventh Jewish feast, Sukkot, is on the 15th uh, of Tishri. That's tabernacles. We're seeing that on the first and the seventh feast, we have a tetrade moon. Do you see that? And that it happens in 2014, and it happens in 2015. That got me really, really interested. Could we go to the next one? Some folks then point out that between these two years, 2014, Passover, seven feasts to Sukkot, you have a solar eclipse. That'll be March 20th, 2015. And then you have Passover and Sukkot, both again covered by tetrade moons. Is that phenomenal? It is. It gets everybody's attention. It got my attention for about six hours today. Based on this, everybody should go, wow, that's neat. But based on this, do we say Christ is going to return in 2015? Could we go to the next one? In the 21st century, there have been eight tetrads. 17th, 18th, 19th century, there were none. So that looks very, very rare, doesn't it? 
In 2,000 years, however, there have been 16, I'm sorry, 62 tetrads. That means that 62 times we have had two consecutive years with evenly spaced blood moons or tetrad moons, four of them total, 62 times. We had one in 2003 and 2004. Did anybody notice it? Did you write it down? Did the world fundamentally change? You probably didn't even know it occurred, huh? (laughs) It was an election year, brother said. What makes these special and the reason Bible prophecy experts are getting excited is because only eight times in that same 2,000-year period did they coincide with Jewish feast. Now you begin to see what gets everybody's interest. In the 160s AD, we had the second Jewish revolt, and there were tetrade moons. Nobody is surmising about the year 795 to 796, but there's a tetrade moon. Same with 842 to 843, same with 860 to 861, but they pick up in 1493. Do you see the list? Can y'all read that? And they draw special significance from it. I'd like to talk to you about that a little bit tonight. That is an overview. So when we're thinking about that, I would title this section in your note, A Right Heart in the wrong data. If you take data and you torture it long enough, you'll get it to confess to almost anything. You know, if you smash Judah's watch in the hand, say, 315, and you stare at it, and you speak to it, and you yell at it, and you come back and check on it every hour, it will still be right twice a day, even though it's broken. My real concern with looking at things like this before we get into our more practical aspects of this message, are really that Aesop's fables, the boy who cried wolf, you can cry wolf so many times that the whole world just blows it. What happened in 2012? The Mayan calendar. Did anybody's lives fundamentally change because of the Mayan calendar? But we heard it many times. Does anybody remember Y2K? All the reasons Jesus was coming back for Y2K. We've been doing this a long time, and you know what? They've consistently been wrong. So some people could draw the conclusion, Peter warned that they would draw the conclusion, that God had somehow been slow in his return because he didn't come when they thought he should come. He didn't do what they said he was going to do, didn't back up their view of prophecy. Second Peter, the third chapter. Let's start there. Are y'all with me so far? If you uh, hear me step on one of your teachers, that is not my intention. I can start with Perry Stone and go through all of them. They're anointed men that have godly aspirations, good teachings, just like I hope I have some good teachings. But occasionally, they overreach. And haven't we all done that? The best thing that we can do is walk humbly before our God and be careful in what we're asserting boldly may happen if we're not sure that God has said it. In 2 Peter 3, start with this. Um, Maybe verse 3. But first of all, you must understand that in the last days, scoffers will come scoffing. And following their own evil desires, they will say, where is this coming? He promised. Ever since our fathers died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. But they deliberately forget that long ago, by God's word, that heavens existed and the earth was formed out of water and by water. By these waters, also the world of that time was deluged and destroyed. By the same word, the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly men. But do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise. Now, if he wrote that in the first century, how do you feel about it in the 21st century? The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise as some have understood slowness. He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone 
to come to repentance. What does the Lord want? He wants everyone to come to repentance. Let me tell you where the first alarm went off in my spirit as I began thinking about the possibility of the Lord returning in 2014. How many of you have heard all of your life Jesus can return any minute? The imminent coming of the Lord. Imminent coming of the Lord. And I believe in the soon return of the Lord. But any minute, I would like you to show me that in Scripture. Instead, I would also urge that we start in Matthew 24, and let's go to verse 13 together. This is not a Bible prophecy teaching, I promise, in the end. This has more to do with practical Christian living. It's just uh, maybe the long way to get there. Matthew 24. Oh, let's back up to 12. Because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold. Have you guys seen that happen? I see that the wickedness is increasing, but I have not at all seen that we have had a great apostasy worldwide, at least not in a way that I think the Bible's going to describe it. But in any case, just hang in there with me. But he who stands firm to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations and then the end will come. Are there people on this planet that have not had the gospel preached to them? In my own lifetime, in this ministry, we have brought the gospel places that it had never been before. If there's still a single place on the planet that has yet to have the testimony of Jesus, we cannot have the end. By the way, are any of us standing firm to the end with overwhelming odds in this country? I mean, are you in danger of being persecuted everywhere you go at this moment? Pick up with me in verse 21. Say there when you're there. For there will be a great distress unequaled from the beginning of the world till now. Anybody read about the Holocaust? There's going to be a distress that the Holocaust doesn't equal. There's going to be a distress on this planet that is worse than World War II. Unequaled from the beginning of the world until now and never to be equaled again. If those days had not been cut short, no one would survive. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be shortened. At that time, if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or there he is, do not believe it. For false Christ and false prophets will appear and perform great signs and miracles to deceive even the elect, if that were possible. See, I have told you ahead of time. So if anyone tells you, there he is out in the desert, do not go out, or here he is in the inner room, do not believe it. For as lightning that comes from the east is visible even in the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Wherever there is a carcass, there the vultures will gather. Immediately after the distress of those days. Immediately after the what? Distress of those days, what's going to happen? The sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. You mean like a lunar eclipse? Maybe. And the stars will fall from the sky and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. Not only has the gospel not been taken into every corner of the globe, we've not had a distress in this year, in this time, unequaled from the beginning of the world till now and never to be equaled again. Now, I know you Republicans think the Obama administration is that distress. But it's not. In fact, it's not even the beginning of a birth pain when it comes right down to it. On a level of Hitler, on a level of Haman, on the level of the kind of things that we have seen on a global scale in history, we're not even experiencing a minor cold. You know, I loved when my parents would come home. I wanted them to come home. Nobody likes their uh, supervisors to be a long ways away unless, of course, you haven't finished your work. I want you to get this. I think all of the evangelicals are crying out for God to return right now because they don't want to finish their work. I think it's just so much easier to say, look, will you bail me out now? I mean, the government bailed out GM. Uh, We're in a bailout time period. 
Would you just come rescue us today? What about the work that we were given to do? Our God is not willing that any should perish. And his slowness in the return means that some will come to repentance. Look at Matthew 10, 23 with me. Tell me what this verse means. Say there when you're there. Oh, let's stay 10:22. All men will hate you because of me, but he who stands firm to the end will be saved. When you are persecuted in one place, flee to another. I tell you the truth, you will not finish going through the cities of Israel. What's that say? Before the Son of Man comes. Are we seeing revival in every city in Israel? Are we seeing a great turning in Israel back to the Lord? I don't see it. Am I just blind or is it happening and we don't know it? You can talk to me. It's okay. You're scared now, huh? Saints, my point here is we're looking for heavenly signs, and I love it. The Bible says they're going to be heavenly signs, but we're ignoring the most pertinent signs that Jesus himself told us to look for. Let me give you the absolute plainest place that I can find it in the Bible. Turn with me to 2 Thessalonians, be in the second chapter and the first verse. Concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered to him, we ask you, brothers, not to become easily unsettled or alarmed by some prophecy, report, or letter supposed to have come from us saying that the day of the Lord had already come. Don't let anyone deceive you in any way. For that day will not come, what's it say? Until the rebellion occurs and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the man doomed to destruction. Have we seen a worldwide rebellion that nobody could fail to to notice? I don't think we have. Now, let me tell you this. Matthew 24 also says, as lightning is visible in the east, I'm sorry, in the west when it flashes in the east, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. What if I told you that of those tetrade moons, four of them, four that occur on Jewish feasts and have gotten me all excited enough to mention it to you on a Wednesday night, three of the four are not even visible in Israel. You follow me? Our earth is rotating around the sun. The moon is rotating around the earth. Not every person on the planet can see a lunar eclipse when it turns red. It might be most visible from the center of the... You know why everybody's excited about this group? Three of the four are visible from North America. And we all know that the Bible revolves around North America, right? Are you getting me? Are you beginning to feel me? So when we take prophecies and we discount our responsibility to bring the gospel to the nations, to care about the poorest of the poor, to fight to see people delivered from darkness and brought in the light, and we resort to, hey, just get me the hell out of here. And then we make it an American-centered thing with Israel as a footnote for our critics. If we can see it in America, then that's good enough for Israel. They'll take our word for it, right? Now, let me just add one more wrinkle before I leave the subject because I don't like to preach messages against something. I don't think that's entirely healthy. Israel's calendar is lunar. That means that every month starts with the face of the moon. So what is the likelihood that if there's going to be a tetrade moon, it's going to fall on an Israeli month? It's going to be about one in seven. That's just the way that that works. Um, I'm not telling you that there is no significance. I'd like to tell you that these men have a right heart. Hagee loves Israel and has done as much as anybody could do for Israel. And I would bow to his superior knowledge on many subjects, but he got this wrong. Uh, Let me tell you some good things here real quick, and then I want to talk to you about how to apply this. Is that okay? They're going to quote Joel 2. And they're going to quote Acts 2, 17 through 21. Let's put Acts 2, 17 through 21 on the screen. Let's talk good things for a minute. How many of you are full of the Holy Ghost? How many of you would like to be more full of the Holy Ghost? We never get enough of the divine presence of God inside of us. The truth is, if this is left to our intellect, none of us will make it. The Spirit of God has got to be uh, our guide. He has to show us he's our master. 
In these last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. I want my brothers in Kenya, my brothers in India, my brothers in East Romania, my brothers that I've not yet met in Myanmar, but I hope to. Not yet met in northern Iraq and western Iran, but I hope to. I want them to have this promise. I'm not praying, Lord, get me the hell out of here before they have a chance to know about the goodness of our God. You know, you can, you can say that we love our fellow man more than we love ourselves. We can say we're obeying that command, but what does it say when we say a tribulation? No, 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 no. I'm out of here. Let those poor Muslims that never heard about Jesus deal with that. I don't think that's very godly, though. In the last days, God said, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they will prophesy. Now let's talk for just a second. Of the places the gospel has gone, how many of them are prophesying? How many of them have truly gotten a taste of the age to come, the spirit of Christ inside them. I mean, they're not reading a memorized three-step track and repeating after someone, Jesus is my Lord, in the hopes that they'll build them a building. They have truly been touched by the heavens and the power and presence of God is set up in them so that they are anointed to speak for God. See, the goal of the gospel is not to get people to participate and a great evangelical sales pitch. It's to have people participate in the divine nature of God and bring the glory that is in the heavens to the far corners of the earth so that his kingdom is all in all. I will show wonders in heaven above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned into darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. If you put that together with Matthew 24, it's after a tribulation, but before the coming of the Lord. Guys, we need the sun to go black. We need the moon to not get hazy or pink. We don't need a pink line in the sand on the moon. We need a sign that would cause the whole world to go, something is happening. The Bible prophecies actually speak of them quaking with fear. Now, if these tetrate moons have happened 60 some odd times before and not been noticed, I'm having a hard time accepting them as the sign that we have been allowed to skip the tribulation, forego all of the hard work ahead of us to get the gospel around the world, and just pack it in, friends. We're going to the heavenly Shipley's donuts in the sky. I don't believe that. I don't believe it, and I think it really misses the mark. As someone who has been forgiven a great deal in my life, who has had a very great weight taken off of my shoulders, I very much want to go help people with that very same thing. I want to see them experience forgiveness. I don't want to leave a tape behind that says, I got raptured here, listen to this. I don't find it biblical. It's only mildly funny because it's so absurd I love the AOG, but they popularized the idea that their great videotape messages would get the world saved after they got raptured out of here. If God had wanted a VHS tape, a DVD, or a Blu-ray to save people, he would have sent that instead of his son. Human beings are the message of the gospel. Do you hear me? You still love me? Let's talk about some things that are right. I promised to do it, and I didn't do it, so let me do it now. Psalm 89, verse 37. Say there when you were there. You have patience to get the rest of a word? I won't feel right if I leave you just saying oh, a guy's best-selling book is not right. That, that's, that's not the purpose that you met with me tonight for. It will be established forever like the moon, the faithful witness in the sky. That's an exciting scripture. The Bible declares that the moon is a faithful witness in the sky. Can I talk to you about some reasons why? The Hebrew calendar is lunar. This means that the faces of the moon told them where they were at. After all, Genesis 1.14 said that the sun and the moon would be for the marking of the seasons, the days, the years. And that's important. 
That meant that on the day, the fourth day where God created, he wanted us to know where we were in his plan. So hats off to these Bible teachers. They're examining it. Men of the East were examining it on the day that Christ came into the world and they set out to find him. It took them almost three years to get there. And when they did, they brought him gifts and bowed down to him and worshiped because they saw signs in the heavens. I'm not saying there aren't signs in the heavens, but whatever they saw, it was so moving to them that they set out with gifts and traveled for years to find them. And it was so impressive that Herod decided to kill firstborn children, I'm sorry, to kill all the male children just to prevent the coming of the king. Uh, when that thing happened in 2003 and four, did, did you see anything like that? Why? Because you didn't even notice it. Okay, the moon is a faithful witness. Let's talk for just a second for fun. How do you be a faithful witness? Does the moon have any light source of its own? No. I mean, nothing generates out of that moon, does it? What's its job? It hangs out in the darkness of space, but it purely reflects the light of the sun. That sun could be a pun, not, not S-U-N, but S-O-N. You want to be a faithful witness? We hang out in a dark world, but we reflect the light of the sun everywhere we go. That's our job. And you know where it's needed most? Where Matthew is right now, there is no electricity. They are still living about 200 years behind where we're living right now. And so if you bring them a three-inch flashlight, it is treasured, treasured. Because when the sun goes down, life has to shut down unless you have some kind of light. Guys, that's like a metaphor. Do you know how many dark places there are on the planet and they need the light that we're supposed to be reflecting there? We can't fold our hands, dust it off, and say our work is done. Uh, You can pray, Lord, get me out of here if you want, but this is one pastor that says, put me to work during the years that I have left. Amen. Is there anybody who wants to work with me? How about Psalm 104 and verse 19? The moon marks off the seasons and the sun knows when to go down. What marks off the seasons? The moon. They got this right. My point is, is we're not off base looking at things that are happening in the heavens. It's, it's a right heart. It's just the wrong conclusions based on the data. Now, let me get to what I really wanted to talk to you about tonight. Is that okay? What I really hope to speak to you tonight about starts with darkness. In Genesis 1, starting in verse 1, hear these familiar words. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. God saw that the light was good and he separated light from darkness. He called the light day and the darkness he called night. There was evening and there was morning the first day. This is a unique claim in all of the world. Other religions of the time have tried to co-opt it or ride on its significance or the validity of the claim. But the Bible itself says that God created everything that there is. Everything. And then this leads us to a conclusion. If somebody created the three gentlemen in the back or the... Seven gentlemen over here to the right. If somebody created them, then you have to ask a question. Do I have a responsibility to the one who created me? And that very question begins in your heart to cause you to evaluate the difference between light and darkness. If there's a creator, then we have a responsibility to that creator. And we begin to speak out to him, respond to him in some way. And when he sheds light in your heart, shows you any truth of any kind, it begins to separate light from darkness. One of the undeniable traits of those who are touched by God is light is beginning to separate out darkness. You want to know how somebody loves the Lord or doesn't love the Lord? It's not by the number of verses they can quote. It's not by how well they attend church. It's in their life how clearly is the delineation between light and darkness. Are they still commingling the two? 
Are they claiming to be in the light but walking in the darkness? First John says they lie and don't practice the truth. In your life, has there been a clear separation? Not in your head, I know this is wrong, and I know in your life, in practice. When God said, let there be light, what was there? It wasn't the work of the light. It, it, it didn't spontaneously generate itself. God spoke it into existence. You can't work to make yourself a better person. It'll never happen. You can't spontaneously generate it. You can't say, I will decide to change my ways and do a new thing and suddenly be better. You're not capable of it. Amen. What was the case of the earth when God was hovering over it? Formless, void, darkness, and judgment waters, the deep. This is just like your life. Under judgment, dark, and no discernible form of void, aimless, until God speaks into it. But once he's spoken, that word has a powerful effect on us forever. It brings order. It begins to separate light from darkness. It begins to move you from evening, which is nighttime, to morning, which is daytime. Where are you in that transition? Are you on your way out of darkness and into light? Are you standing flat in the middle of midnight claiming to be in the light? See, they can say Jesus is returning in 2014 if they want, and they can brand me a heretic if they need to. I I can absolutely assure you without question in my heart or mind, Jesus will not return in 2014 because the work is not done. There is no temple in Jerusalem. There is no worldwide antichrist we're standing against, and the Americans have not begun to have to stand for the gospel. We're weeping and whining because we have the most mild of resistance. Jesus told us what to look for. But I'm less concerned with eschatology at the moment, more concerned with the lives in this room. How are you doing in your struggle against darkness? Is it overcoming you or are you overcoming it? Because when God speaks a thing into your heart, it begins to drive out darkness. And if the darkness is not being driven out, then what you have is not authentically of God and you need to get something that is authentically of God. You can't borrow it from a sermon. You can't borrow it from a pastor. You can't be talked into it in a decision at an altar. A man knows when God has spoken into his heart. When it happened to me, everybody in my life, almost without fail, didn't accept it. But in the end, none could stand against its changing power. It transformed me. Now, I have to move on to day two and three and four and as many days are as they come because it's a continual revolution of letting light drive out darkness. So you had that moment where it separated for you for the first time. Did you leave your day and plunge right back into darkness? How many years can you be backslidden, saints? How many years can you stand and say, I know I'm not where I should be before you're in danger of being in that most who grows cold because of the increase of wickedness? Come on, how much do you love the Lord? If on any one subject, the most wise, Bible-learned, amazing pastors in the world can be deceived, do you really think we can swim in sin and not be deceived? See, I'm relying on the Spirit of God to show me and to tell me. I don't even trust myself. I trust Him. Psalm 19, verses 1 through 4. Will you read them with me? It's something that you may be familiar with. Am I boring you? Are you tired? The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of His hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they display knowledge. There is no speech or language where their voice is not heard. You know, Matthew's in a place, they're speaking Ikugusi. I just came from a place, they're speaking Tamil. Tamil has 263 letters. You know how absurd that is? It'd take me 12 years to learn that. I graduated as a senior in high school knowing the Tamil alphabet. 263 letters. But God has got a way of speaking through the very creation, one central truth. I created you. And you have a responsibility to me. 
And that's a place to start, and it will grow from there. No wonder academia and the devilish powers in this world are working so hard to eliminate a creator from the creation. It's a speech that the whole world understands. Their voice goes out into all the earth. Their words to the ends of the world. In the heavens, he has pitched a tent for the sun. You can see it every day. And it declares that there is a creator. So we have a universal truth. Someone created us, and he's communicating via the creation to us all of the time. Ecclesiastes 3 in verse 10. Turn there. Say there when you're there. Girls fast in her Bible. I have seen the burden God has laid on men. He has made everything beautiful in its time. He has also set eternity in the hearts of men, yet they cannot fathom what God has done from beginning to end. What did he set in the hearts of men? The creator not only put us here and formed the creation around us to witness of his glory, but he also deposited something in our hearts. This is why everywhere you go in the world, whether it's a deep corner of India or it's a mountaintop in Africa or a desert in Arabia, men worship something. Do you find that odd? Anywhere you go on the planet, there is no such thing as ancient atheism. That's a modern thing. You know, you can't go find a monument to nothing. (laughs) It didn't exist. All over the world, in the ancient world, men were monotheistic. And as they degraded and moved away from the Noahic flood, they became polytheistic. But men worship something everywhere because God put it in our hearts to. But the creation is always speaking something to us. There's a God above these created things. Why would you worship a rat, a roach, or a rock when there's a God who made it all? There's ancient accounts. In the Incan dynasty, a man put his thumb up to the sun. His sun god was called Verochi, and he noticed that the sun could be blocked out with his thumb, and he thought, why do we worship this every day if he's so small that I can block out his view with my thumb? And that night, he laid down and had a dream about a god that he called the sky god who created even the sun, and he wrote things that were like the Psalms. Don Richardson's book, Eternity in Their Hearts, contains literally hundreds of stories of men who were yearning for God and God spoke back to them because the creation was calling out to them and inside of them eternity was in their hearts. How special do you think it would have been if somebody had shown up and taught him the truth? How did you find out about Jesus Christ? Did somebody deposit a VHS tape for you to watch? How many of you got born again from reading a track? Probably you ran into God's method of witness, a human being who had been touched by God. And when you ran into them, you saw and thought about something that was different in them. And when you went to bed that night, you yearned for it because God put eternity in your hearts. Christian, how long have you had access to the treasures of heaven? And there are people out there dying every day that have never had the first taste. Can we really say, get me out of here in 2014? Hebrews, the first chapter and first verse puts it this way. In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom he made the universe. The sun is the radiance of God's glory. It's true that the creation speaks of God's glory, but the sun is the radiance of God's glory. It doesn't speak of God's glory. He is God's glory. Have you met him? Do you know him? What's his name? How many people are there on the globe that have never heard that name? They don't know what it is. They have a general sense that there must be some reason we're here, but they have no answer to that question. Can we really say, get us out of here? 
Say there's work left to be done. How many people are you willing to leave in a building that's on fire simply because you're tired and would like to go home? If your father said, save them all, son, and you could see the flames upon them, could you see turning to that same father and saying, you know, I'm tired. Would you get me out of here? It's the height of insolence, isn't it? Were you saved because of something you did or were you saved because he loved you? Answer me, church. Does he love them less? Then we have a responsibility. I'm worried that like Aesop's fable, the boy will cry wolf so many times that if we do approach something that is truly extraordinary, not contrived, but extraordinary, people wouldn't heed the warning because they hear something like it every year. You know, the Mayan calendar thing caught people's attention for a little while. Now they make Oreo cookie commercials about it on TV that are really quite humorous. You know, people sold houses and moved their estates because a man named Harold Camping predicted Jesus would return in a certain year. What about what Jesus himself predicted? Should we pay more or less attention to Jesus? He's the exact representation of the Father. He sustains everything by his powerful word. He's the ultimate, guys. We don't have to look to lesser prophets. How about John, the first chapter? You'll recognize these words. They come from verse 14. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Saints, they see his glory when it rests on your shoulders in their midst. The apostle Peter said, his glory rests on your shoulders when you suffer reproach for the name. When we stand in the midst of trials and in the midst of the lost, when we are light like the moon, the faithful witness in the sky, when we are reflecting his light in a dark place, it marks the turning of a season for them. It gives them the opportunity to have what you've been spoiled with all of your life. How many of you have ever been without access to a Bible. The little village of Rianchogu got the first Bibles they ever had in their language two years ago when we brought them. Can we really say to hell with them, we're getting out of here? I bet when you see the pictures Matt and Cass bring back, your heart will go out and you'll love them. Is it okay if we just don't see the pictures? Maybe we just stick our head in the sand and say, get us out of here. By the way, if the Lord returned tomorrow, what of his people? Are you really satisfied with most of Israel rejecting Messiah? What of his people? How would you feel about me if I came and saved you but left everybody in your household on fire? They're his brothers. Are you hearing me? We have a response. John 1.18 No one has ever seen God, but God, the one and only who is at the Father's side, has made him known. Who makes Jesus known, though? Oh, God has to speak it in people's heart, but the Bible declares you are his ambassador. He makes his appeal through you. So whether we're on this side of the room with Gabby or we're on that side of the room with Brandon, you have a job. Jesus has made the Father known to you. You know what he's like. You love him. You're in covenant with him. His word is separating darkness out of your... Can we really leave people in darkness? See, I'll say this about our entitlement society. One person figures out Obama will give them a phone. They tell everybody they know they can go get a free phone too. You find out you don't got to work anymore? Somebody will just give you money? Put it on a little card so you don't have to feel bad about it. Nobody will notice that you're not actually working. They'll just give you, we used to call them food stamps, but now that's demeaning. Throw out that verse, don't work, don't eat. Just get rid of it. But when you find out, man, I got a gravy train over here. You whisper it to your closest friends. And you all go do it together. Don't tell me I'm lying. I've been, I've seen it. Now, you have received something from the heavens and we're going to hide it from the people we care about the most? Not even the lost do that. You understand? If they find over a, a truck turned over with money falling out of it, 
They'll tell somebody when they've gotten all they can carry, you know. Have you gotten something good from the Lord? I'm not satisfied knowing that most of the Middle East has never had Jesus accurately portrayed to them. That's not okay with me. It'll never be okay with me. If Judah's got to hop on his one leg, I promise he will go into nations. The gospel is for the lost. It's for the poor. I mean, I love that NASA confirmed that there are four tetrade moons. Isn't that exciting? NASA confirmed it. We can go to the moon, but we can't reach the world for the gospel. Went to the moon 40-something years ago. But in those same 40 years, we traversed the whole distance to the moon. How many millions of dollars have been spent on cathedrals and assemblies, on better PowerPoint presentations or whatever they do? But what about the lost? Come on, somebody said, Pastor, put your money where your mouth is. We put 40% there, and that's not nearly enough. When we can figure out how to eat less or figure out how to spend less, then we will send more. Church, I care, and I hope you care. Romans 5, 6 through 7, I use in marriage counseling all of the time, but that's not how it first came to me. You see, at just the right time when we were still powerless, say powerless. If you were never powerless, you hadn't been saved. When we were still powerless, if you were pretty good all of your life and one day you just decided to follow Jesus, friends, that's not the creation, the recreation, the new creation, the heavenly creation story. It was powerless, devoid of anything good. Tohu vavohu. God spoke ex nihilo. He spoke into existence out of nothing, the creation. How does he make a creation in you? You got to hear his voice and it speaks into the nothingness of your life. What Peter calls the empty way of life and something new was born and it changes everything. When you've had that happen to you, you see at just the right time, at what time? The right time. How many of you would like to have been saved earlier. <laughs> and you think that you could have been. I spent a lot of years wondering about that. But this says you see it just the right time. He saved me at just the right time. What if it's their right time? You gonna make him use a rock, a VHS tape, really? the God of the universe that created you and all of your splendor and intricate workings, and you're going to ask him to use an iPod? You, you, you know what VHS tapes and iPods and, and Blu-rays are really for? They're for the equipping of Christians to go, not for the replacing of Christians so you can stay home. If I could black out our messages to this congregation, I would. I would. Because we're supposed to use them to get equipped and that's it. Not just sit in our comfort. Are you hearing me? You see, at just the right time when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Who did he die for? He died for the ungodly. What was your state? He didn't wait for you to come to him. He went to you. And now the same attitude's got to be in us. I love that Bible prophecy experts have been turned on to Israel. It's like in the last 20 years, people have finally learned what the feasts are. And as they figured it out, they went, oh man, these, these are good, you know? Because they were ignored for hundreds of years. And now that people are beginning to understand, it's like we've got a right idea and we just can't help but apply it in all of the wrong ways. It's not time to get out of here. It's time to go to work. That's talking about going to work. I would prefer to be strong when I work. I'd prefer to be well-fed. I would hope that on the day the biggest task is before me, I would be the best equipped, the most powerful, the most ready. But anybody that has ever had to contend for something knows you don't choose the day of the challenge. 
And it often comes when you feel the least prepared, the least nourished, the least equipped. And that way God seems to get glory in our weakness. Turn me to Hosea 12. Say there when you're there. No, pride goes before the destruction. And I surely don't want to equip you with more pride to go out and show people that you know something they don't. I want to equip you with a sense of urgency. This is what you have was freely given you, and it came to you at a time you were wretched. Now we have to bring it to others. Hosea 12 and verse 2. The Lord has a charge to bring against Judah. He will punish Jacob according to his ways and repay him according to his deeds. Is that a scary verse to you? That's terrifying. What would happen if the Lord's charges against you were read out loud? What if you were punished according to your ways? What if everybody in this room could walk up to you and the list of the sin committed in your lifetime was attached to your forehead and strung down to your feet, how humiliated would you be? Would it say theft? Would it say liar? Would it say adulterer? Would it say pornographer? What would it say? Can you imagine the weight of that falling on someone? See, most of us have not had to deal with that thought since, well, around the time we were born again. But you know what? There are people wrestling with it all over the world. In India, they kill themselves at a rate that is hard to even understand. Every time you go up on a high mountain, there's a place that's barricaded. Am I lying, Judah? Because they throw themselves off off of the mountain, hopeless, under the weight of sin. In the womb, he grasped his brother's heel, and as a man, he struggled with God. He struggled with the angel and overcame. He wept and begged for his favor. He found him at Bethel, and he talked with them there. Jacob was charged with sin, but he met with God at Bethel, the house of God. And there they talked, and he found favor. Where are people going to find favor? They're going to have to do it in the house of God. Since they can't come to us, I think we have to go to them. Bethel is not just a place on a map anymore, friends. When Jesus looked at Nathanael and he said, what if you see angels ascend and descend on the Son of Man? He was calling himself Bethel. That's where it took place. He was calling himself the house of God. Do you believe Jesus is the house of God? If you're his ambassador, what are you? Is God's spirit in you? I asked you earlier how many were spirit-filled. See, being in contact with us is supposed to put them in contact with God. The Lord God Almighty, the Lord is his name, but you must return to your God, maintain love and justice, and wait for your God always. Did you hear that last part? I don't care how tired our Bible teachers are of waiting. Our work is not done. They can say it's been 2014 years and the world's going to hell in a handbasket. Get me out of here. All they want to. And I found out that you can sell books that way. It doesn't matter what your premise is. If you tell people they will escape everything that's difficult and inherit everything that's wonderful, they seem to buy it by the bushel. We wouldn't have nearly so many empty chairs in here if we adopted that kind of gospel. But I think you have to endure everything that's difficult. I think like Philippians says, you have to fill up in your body what is lacking in regards to Christ's affliction because it's our job to present the gospel to them. The end will not come until every tribe, tongue, and nation has had their opportunity. The end will not come until everyone has had their chance to stand firm. I want to talk to you about walking with a limp. Are you still awake? This is Genesis 32 and verse 30. This is the attitude with which we not only go to the nations, but we go to our neighbors. Do you remember how you felt a minute ago when I talked to you about a list of your sins starting at your forehead and going down to the feet? 
You remember the weight of what that would feel like? It's funny, Judah and I have been in the hospital, and, uh, you know, in the hospital you have to do all kind of things that you don't do in normal life, right? You help each other get into a restroom. You help each other do whatever has to be done. You know what I'm saying, don't you? Come on, talk to me. What's wrong with you people? I said, you all right, Judy? He goes, well, you know, this is a little embarrassing. I just get put on a table naked in front of four people, an angiogram. Why do you do it, though? It's got the potential to save your life. Everything about the gospel is a humbling experience. It is an ever-narrowing way. It will always put you in a position that you are not comfortable for someone else's benefit. How comfortable do you think that cross was for Jesus? How comfortable do you think the five times he was beaten with rods was for Paul? Or the day and the night he spent in the open sea? Or Peter crucified upside down? Or Philip outside of Heropolis on an X in front of his family? How comfortable do you think those things were? Probably not all that comfortable. The gospel has always required us to be uncomfortable. Genesis 32 and verse 30. So Jacob called the place Peniel, saying, It is because I saw God face to face, and yet my life was spared. Why would he be worried about his life being spared? Well, you could say that it was said if anybody saw God, they'd be dead. How would you like to go see God while your list was still on your forehead down to your feet? Have you ever seen somebody lost die? Anybody in here seen that? It is a horrifying experience. They spend their last dollar to stay alive. Sometimes they fight, gasp, claw at those around them as they're dying. You ask any ICU nurse who has a clue, and she can tell you that something's wrong when people are lost and they die. Guys, you've had the opportunity to have your list washed away, erased. Do you have any mercy, any sympathy for those that are still carrying it around and the fear that must come over them because they don't know what to do except get a longer list? Am I the only one who remembers what that weight was like? He felt privileged because he met with God and he didn't die. That means he knew he deserved death but he received mercy. Are you in that category? Did you deserve death, but have now received mercy? See, I think we are. I am. If you're not, I am. The sun rose above him as he passed Peniel, and he was limping because of his hip. Therefore, to this day, the Israelites do not eat the tendon attached to the socket of the hip because the socket of Jacob's hip was touched near the tendon. When he wrestled with his angel, Hosea called him an angel. The angel left him with a... The word literally means dislocated. A dislocated hip. See, if I were going to go carry the message of mercy to the world, I would do it from a position of strength, a position of celebrity. I would do it just like one of those Roman emperors in the first century, from a palace, so everybody would know how great it was. But God does not operate that way. How did he appear? He appeared with a limp, so to speak. He disadvantaged himself. It wasn't enough that he let go of equality with God. It wasn't enough that he became a man. It wasn't enough that he became a servant or that he submitted to death. He submitted to the worst kind of death, death on a cross. What I'm trying to tell you is we don't win the world while everything is going just hunky-dory for us. We win the world when they can see that we're limping and yet carrying on. When they can see that we deserve death and yet we found life. That's what moves the hearts of men. You know why? They identify with it. You show them Donald Trump and they see somebody that they hope they can be like one day. You show them a man who is broken in his sin. And yet it's relieved and they see a man that they can be like today. 
Church, I would like to encourage you that you ought not be able to get rid of your lamp. It reminds you that you're an object of mercy. Your very great need for God is the very great attractive thing about the gospel. Have you been on your face this week? Is there something that you're asking your heavenly father to meet you in right now because your heart burns and you hurt for it? Are you just comfortable and every day is the same as the next? See, the gospel is carried around the world not by the well-fed, but by the limping. And it's powerful because their testimony is my name was Jacob and now it's Israel. I was a deceiver and now I'm a prince with God. And yet you can still see the limp. Mark 14, 3 is my last scripture that I want you to turn to. While he was in Bethany, reclining at the table in the home of a man known as Simon the leper. A woman came with an alabaster jar, a very expensive perfume, made of pure nard. She broke the jar and poured the perfume on his head. Jacob's hip and that alabaster jar mean nothing while they're intact. But it means everything when they've been wrenched, they've been broken, and they've been used in the Lord's service. So what is it, Pastor? Are you asking me to be weak? Are you telling me I should fight to be weak? I'm saying, no, you already are. You just need to admit it. You already are. You just need to let God's glory be displayed through it. We teach you to win Bible prophecy debates, but where would the limp be in that? Where would God's glory be in that? You let an unlearned, untrained man go and by the power of God face the whole religious establishment. His limp was who he was, an untrained Galilean fisherman. Saints, God takes the lowly things and he does amazing things with them. That's what he does. The way that we we work this out really comes from Hebrews 12. We strengthen our feeble knees. We fix our eyes on the author and perfecter of our faith. In limping, crawling, walking or running, we go after him. But the last thing we do is in the third quarter of the game, raise our hand and say, Coach, would you take me out? I'm ready to go home. This is not a gospel for cowards. It is not a gospel for escapees. It's a gospel of those who have been shown mercy. And now they'll give their lives to see that mercy extended to everyone else. Is there any objects of mercy out there today? Just Judah? Any objects of mercy out there today? Have you been given mercy? If you've been given mercy, you owe it to the living God that you display it towards everyone else.